Hey gang, it's Harold, and I've got a podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. We'll experiment with a few things and work to find some interesting content. Look forward to your thoughts, comments, and ideas. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with Volko Runka, the father of the coin series. We'll discuss his new campaign and levy series, published by GMT Games and kicking off with Nevsky. Wait till you hear what's next in that series. He'll also update us on what's going on with coin. Welcome to my little part of the world. I could take you on a guided tour. I can show you what you need to know about this coin that's so far from your Volko Runka's first published design, Wilderness War, was published by GMT Games in 2001. Wilderness War won a Charles S. Robert Award for Best Pre-World War II Board Game. He followed that with Labyrinth, which won the Charles S. Robert Award in 2010 for Best Post-World War II Board Game. His next game kicked off the coin series, Andy and Abyss, won the 2012 Charles S. Roberts Award for Best Post-World War II Era Board War Game. Built around an innovative system of initiative where the cards that drive play are known to everyone, the game pulls four players together to fight for the future of Columbia in the 1990s. Each faction in the game has asymmetric capabilities and goals, driving friends, enemies, and frenemies to negotiate to accomplish factional goals. Dice play a minor role in the game with randomness driven by card sequence and player choices. The game has since spawned a flurry of activity games based on the coin system. Coin stands for counterinsurgency and that's what Volko's original vision for the system was. Since then, the system has been used to model ancient campaigns in the Roman occupied but not yet conquered Gaul. Coin's fifth installment is set in the American War of Independence. Imagine that. Solo play is driven by a detailed set of flowcharts and a loyal cadre of players and developers that love the challenge of beating the bots. Volko's supportive and kind hand has guided many a team in expanding the system from its Andean abyss roots. The excellence and the impact of the coin series is why we all listen when Volko champions another series. The recent announcement by Volko and GMT Games of the Campaign and Levy series Kicked off with Nevsky has many a wargamer frothing with anticipation. I start the interview by asking Volko to tell us about Nevsky and where the game comes from. from um, on two uh, two directions the, the first that I think you know wording wording design is usually to uh, draw their 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 thoughts from the first is a historical oh this is a really interesting topic or period or system and I want to explore that and the other might be okay here is an interesting mechanical uh, 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 you know set of ways to represent things and 
and those two directions then merge. You know, for example, it might be okay. I've, you know, like in your case, you you long thought about the American Revolution, interested in that topic, um, thought okay, the coin series core engine might work well, and put that together right into liberty or death. And so from the from the historical point of view. Uh, it actually goes back to undergraduate um, a course I had in uh, English constitutional law and, and how much of the um, legal uh, traditions came out of the, the, the feudal obligations and particularly the obligations to provide um, men and arms and this idea that, okay, well, your, 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 requir- your legal requirement is to produce, you know, three guys with a sword and a shield and one horse and and, and serve for 40 days and so forth. And I just thought it was, it was a fascinating, um, uh, almost a core basis for, uh, for what became constitutional law was this, this um, requirement for limited and specified military service. And the thought I had, I guess then that wasn't crystallized, but crystallized you know, decades later just recently was how does that affect campaigns how how is it that this feudal system um it must have affected campaigns if you could only count legally on uh certain vassals serving for certain periods with certain capacities and then um if if they wanted to they they could go home that must have had an effect on campaigns so sort of that that was the initial question from one side of it and got me to thinking well there aren't a lot of games in fact i'm not sure there are any games that help answer that. That is, there's just very little done at the operational scale uh, for medieval warfare. We have lots of strategic games, you know, Kingmaker and and Empires of the Middle Ages and so forth. And some of the excellent Columbia block games like Crusader Rex and Hammer of the Scots have some operational aspect to them, but really they're they're more at the strategic or national level, um, and they're covering you know several um, you know many years of campaigning. And then of course we've got battle games like Men of um, Iron series, where we're focused on particular you know spectacular engagements like say Bannockburn or something like that. Um, but in between that is the operational uh, scale, the operational level, where it's a matter of of levying forces via this feudal system, and then so much more of interests, the whole logistical aspect of keeping armies fed and um, the impact of transportation routes and the impact of fortifications on maneuvers and on what caused battles to take place. And so so there was the thought that, that there's a whole level of story of medieval warfare that hasn't been told, or at least not much, in war games. And I started with Nevsky. Um, I mean, that kind of goes back to, um, we were talking about movies a little, well, just a few minutes ago, seeing, um, obviously seeing that movie, um, Sergei Eisenstein's uh, Alexander Nevsky, uh, which was one of the first, um, I think the first film that they, they have this uh, great thing they do now at, um, uh, uh, large performance halls where they show a, a film and they have a live orchestra and, 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 and choir sometimes. Have you been to any of those, Harold? I haven't. That sounds great. Oh, my gosh. So this was at Wolf Trap here, um, uh, National Park uh, Performing Center um, near near my house. 
Um, and, and, and the movie's a silent movie, is that correct? It is no, it's a uh, nineteen. It's nineteen thirties. It's got. It's one of those movies where they record. They filmed it silent, but then recorded the sound in a studio. If you've ever seen these nineteen thirties movies, where you know there's a clip clop as the horse is riding, but you can tell there's something a little bit <laughs> off because it's actually really is just you know coconut shells or something. So it's a sound. It's a black and white sound film, uh, classic Sergei Eisenstein so film uh, movie uh, in the thirties. So it's it's you know made under Stalin and. When it was before the uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and so the uh, the Germans are definitely the heavies, and so Nevsky is is the uh, leader of the uh, you know, patriotic proletariat um, against the, the the you know the evil Teutonic machine-like Teutonic knights who are invading and finally fighting the, the battle uh, on the ice. And uh, but it's a it's a cla- it's a classic for how you film how you would film battle scenes and influence sort of all subsequent movies about you know great battle scenes and so forth, and uh, and has a f- fantastic, um, very famous score Sergei Prokofiev uh, Alexander Nevsky which now is frequently performed, got Nevsky suite anyway, so so the, it was a you know a digitally restore, re, re restored black and white on the big screen, live orchestra and choir, you know, Alexander Nevsky. And so that made a real impression to me. And my ancestry is from not far from there, is is from East Prussia. Uh, so I also wanted to design something that was not exactly, but a little closer to my own sort of ancestral story. And so that took me to the specific topic for the series of uh, the Teutonic Knights uh, and other Teutonic Lords who were very fractious among themselves, but for a brief time coalesced into an anti-Russian campaign that made uh, made Alexander Nevsky into the um, a, 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 an Orthodox Russian Orthodox saint. So that campaign, but then mechanically, the other side of it was actually came from my uh, adoration of the design of the game Angola. So have you played Angola, Harold? I've, I I lo- I've played Angola and love it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Angola, I only discovered in the, in the newer, beautiful, uh, MMP version. Yes. But it's been around since the eighties, Ragnar brothers. Right. And it's, it's this, a brilliant design that I played it. I don't know. in the, you know, when it came out in it with MMP, so in the last, you know, six, seven years, something like that, and I was like, why? This has been around the 80s. Why has this not been copied? This is awesome. And there's so many, you know, <laughs> uh, elegant ideas in it. Um, and and I don't know the, I still don't know the answer to that. However, I determined I would do so. Perfect. Uh, that is, I would copy some things from it. And and one thing I love in Angola is the column cards in which you you stack, you stack your, your column cards and they're attached to certain stacks of your units. And you stack these cards and then when you play the the campaign everybody's flipping over one card in turn as you know and that card just has column a or column b or whatever there's a couple other options and and that's what you're moving and you don't have to look at the whole board you just focus very quickly on okay it's just column a do i want to do something with it or not and it it so it's very quick and it's also very um uh very very challenging because of course in the in the game, the situation changes with the first couple of moves, and now you have your stack of column cards is this plan that's not survived contact with right. the enemy. It, it provides both opportunities and limitations, right? That that if you commit it, to a card, if you commit a unit group of units to a card, 
then uh, you have to play them as such. You can't split them up, but you can move them as a group. Exactly. And, and you have to come, in fact, you have to plan ahead. And so in Angola, that's simulating the, you know, the rough and tough, the, the command and control of, among these fractious, these were enemies who had been fight, uh, or there's had been allies who were fighting all against the Portuguese. Now Portuguese are out, now they're fighting each other. They're, 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 it's in the period of transition. The game is set in the first year of a long Angolan civil war. It's a transition from the insurgency against the, the, the colonial power to fighting each other in civil war, and everybody's confused. And so that confusion of, of a third world civil war is, is, is very effectively um, portrayed uh, operational, at the operational scale with these cards where you have to commit to a plan. I'm gonna move column A, then I'm gonna move column B, then I'm gonna move column B again, then I'm gonna pass, then I'm gonna move column A again or something like that, right? That right, would be your plan. Right. Because you have some expectation of what the constellation of forces are on the map. And you have a partner in Angola, it's 2v2, you have a partner who is doing the same thing to themselves though. You're not really coordinating, you're just, you know, you're, you're, you're just doing your own plan. And then you're committed. And by the time you get to the second or third card, the situation on the map has changed so much. You're like, well, I don't want to move column B now. I can't. Column B needs to stay where it is and defend this. And, and so you, you see in a very, very simple, in fact, the mechanic makes things go faster, not slower. Agreed. Um, uh, uh, you see how tough it is to plan a campaign, an operational campaign, in the face of the dynamics of you know all the movement of all these units, right? right. So, so what other game uses that? Off the Besides, top of my head, I can't. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, why isn't that everywhere? Like, like, like you know, like a CDD is everywhere. I, I don't know why. So that's that seems to me it's something I wanted to remedy. So I thought about before I even before I even thought about English constitutional law or Nefsky or anything. I thought about where would this make? Where else would this make sense? And it makes sense. It seems to me at the operational scale, and it makes sense when command and control and communications are not everything you would like them to be. Really, you know, those limitations matter. And when, um, as in an Angolan civil war, the relationships among friendly um, commanders, the trust might not be there. Not only technologically is the communication not there, but you might not um, uh, be, be organized enough, hierarchical enough, or trusting enough to get together with other commanders and say, okay, let's keep each other informed about what we're doing as we go. And I thought medieval warfare, would make a lot of sense to bring out the limitations of the command structure and command and control technologically through this similar, this kind of um, plan, I, I call it a plan, the stack of cards that says, okay, now this Lord is gonna move, then that Lord's gonna move, then this Lord's gonna move, then we're gonna pass, then this. And that's what, and so you, you can imagine these Lords maybe exchange some, some letters or they get together for an actual council of war and then they go off and they lead their armies. And by the time you're activating Lord so-and-so, he doesn't really know what the situation is anyway. He's just acting on old information on that plan, or maybe he's acting on his own interest. And so I thought this same system, I call them command cards, but would do very well for operational level medieval. And so that's in Nevsky from Angola. And I, think it's, it, I think it's working out very well. 
in terms of, of a very, first of all, it's a challenging exercise to decide how do I arrange these? And then there's, you don't know which of your, which of the enemy lords is going to go uh, next. And you get yourself into situations in which, okay, well, it's now or never with this lord, but the situation isn't exactly right to do something with him. Should I do something with him or not, or just give up the move? So um, I, I think that that port um, works very well to a very different kind of um, setting. And if, and if, and if, that proves successful. I mean, think about the possibilities for for other settings. Sure, that's terrific. It's uh, it's an interesting application. Now, <clears throat> as I recall the history, there was uh, Alexander was not originally Alexander Nevsky, right? It was uh, there was an exile, and then the Battle of uh, Battle of the Ice, uh, at which point we were we renamed Alexander Alexander Nevsky. Is that correct? Um, well, it's a little a little different than that. Um, so Nevsky is not what he was called at the time. Uh, it was not what he was called in the in the 13th century when he was alive. That did come later, and that was he's named Nevsky for the Battle of the Neva, which is a river up where now Saint Petersburg is. At the time, it was just a river that was the opening of Novgorod's trade system to the west because Novgorod was so rich because it lay along a river trade route from from Western Europe via the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea in the, in the east. And so this river Neva from the Baltic that um, uh, to, to, Ladiga, to Lake Ladiga um, and down the Volkov River to Novgorod uh, was an important trade route for, 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 for Novgorod's prosperity. And the Battle of the Neva um, in 1240, the story is that the Swedes, as sort of a um, crusade, if you will, this is all in the context of the Northern Crusades in the 13th century, and just to sidetrack a bit, that is that, that it was getting really, really tough to fight against the Muslims in the Holy Land, but these lords still needed to have, you know, be forgiven for, for, for sins and, and do some kind of service, and they got more and more were able to get agreement from the the pope that okay well can we just go you know bash some pagans in in the northeast in places like prussia instead and of course that also meant um these were much easier targets generally than the than the the, the very sophisticated muslim armies and kingdom and um and and kingdoms and like and uh, also meant a lot of opportunity of course for taking territory because you convert you know, if you convert some heathens, then you get to rule them. Right. And uh, so as part of all that, Sweden is in, involved in that. Denmark is involved in that. And a lot of Germans and the Teutonic order that has, you know, that comes up originally in the Holy Land um, really becomes successful when it, it undertakes this northern crusade in Prussia and Livonia. So that's the setting of, of these campaigns against the Russians, the Swedes. According to the story in 1240, land at the mouth of the Neva River and they're intent on, you know, invading Russia. And Alexander, at that time, uh, an appointed prince of Novgorod, because what's interesting is, is Novgorod is a republic. Uh, so they, you know, they're, they're not ruled by kings. They have a town council of, of notables um, in the city, the Vietje, and they uh, invite and appoint a prince in time of emergency. So that was Alexander. So Alexander Vesevolodovich, um, who is the, who's one son of a very powerful family 
in the in what is now what is what later would become Muscovy, but further in the interior. Um, he's he is appointed a prince, and he supposedly leads an army quickly up, uh, surprisingly quickly up to the Swedish encampment on the River Neva and surprise attacks and defeats them. And the Swedes head home with um, tails between their legs. And from that great victory on the River Neva, Alexander later, much later, is nicknamed Nevsky. So that's where Nevsky, the name, comes from. Yeah. So, now the now that is not in the game. <laughs> right. It's it's pri- it's prior to the game. Right. It's just prior to the game. And one of the reasons I didn't put it in the game is because it's actually disputed whether any of that actually happened. Um, the problem. And so here we are with I mean, it's just like the ancient. If you do a war game on ancient battles, you know, how much information do you really have? It's not like, you know, the Vietnam War or something where we have volumes of data. Um, the problem with the Neva battle story is it appears in the Russian chronicle, the Novgorod chronicle, but does not, there's no record of it from the Swedish side. And that is not the case for other battles like the Battle of the Ice that you mentioned, where both sides, the Novgorod chronicle and the Livonian chronicle, both tell compatible stories of that battle and that campaign. That's not the case. So it's, some historians don't even think the Neva thing actually happened, that there was ever a Swedish invasion at that time is disputed. Interesting. And then, and then of course, the questions about was Alexander actually exiled, right? So, uh, so th- that's less, less likely to have been f- fabricated in the, um, you know, I don't know, what do they call There's a certain word for when you're talking about a saint, you know, right. you have to, you, you say great things about them. And so that's why Alexander might come off as being so fabulous in what he did on the Neva River, even though he didn't do anything fabulous. But in this case, um, there's there's little reason to doubt that there is a lot of internecine Russian politicking going on, just like there is among the Teutons as well. I mean, it's just the feudal thing. It's called the feudal age and the feudal system because they're feuding all the time because of <laughs> the weakness of the people at the top. That's absolutely that's absolutely the case. And so in the, in Russia, what you had at this time is you had a conflict among great great houses, great families, and Alexander is part of the Vsevolodovich. And there's another one, Mstislavich, and these two families are battling back and forth. And sometimes one of them controls, you know, is is uh, ascendant in Novgorod. Sometimes the other. Sometimes one of them is ascendant in Pskov, uh, a, a key city of important ally of Novgorod that, of course, shows up in the saga. Sometimes the others. And when the Teutons come in, and in the movie, of course, the Teuton, the German. The Germans take over Russian Pskov and, and, and kill Russian babies, and patriotically the Russians rise up and resist, and that's the 1930s movie. What's happening at the time, of course, is probably, yes, the Teutonic um, crusaders are attacking Russia at a time they think that, that, that the Russian, that Novgorod is weak, and they're conquering Pskov, but they're inserting themselves into these uh, intrigues and there's a uh, good reason to think that they actually that the Pskov opened its gates to the Teutons as an, a move against the, the those who were ascendant in Novgorod and so forth. In other words, as a Russian on Russian political intrigue. And so Alexander, that Alexander would have been thrown out of Novgorod, is entirely reasonable to accept especially in the context of Novgorod as a republic, because what is this problem of a too powerful general that you see in so many historical periods. Um, the notables in Novgorod, the, the nobles who are running Novgorod and making all this money in Novgorod, 
don't want to be overshadowed too long by a powerful prince. As long as they and, don't need the powerful prince, right? And 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 if we yeah, and and let's say there was a battle which threw the Swedes back. Okay, why we don't need him anymore? Out you go, you right. know, <laughs> right? And so then what what becomes interesting in the game is at a certain point the emergency the, the Swedes are kicked out, but the Teutons are coming on, and this is and the reason they're coming on is because. Uh, because they think Novgorod's on its back because the whole rest of Russia has just been overrun by the Mongols. And, and so now Novgorod has very few friends. And, uh, and, so, and so when does the Novgorod town council invite Alexander or maybe his brother Andre back to marshal the forces and, and, and defend against um, this Teutonic invasion, and that is in the game because because we want to get at the fact that the, the the feudal system in various forms. So this is this is of course a little bit different than what the feudal system looked like in England or France, right? Right. Right. Um, but the feudal system in Russia, as in um, uh, uh, Europe to the West, is politically fractious, and these are all negotiated relationships. And the supposed underling really has a lot of power over the Lord. Um, the, very often, the Lord needs the vassals more than the vassals need the Lord. It's all about local strongmen and deals. And so part of that, the way that plays out with regard to Alexander's exile is, okay, so the, the Teutons have taken Peskov and they're pressing further on Novgorod's um, commercial empire. When do the town notables in Novgorod say, okay, yes, come on, Alexander, we'll take you back. We need you. Well, I, you know, Volko, I think uh, <laughs> my ignorance and, and, and the community's ignorance on the topic is going to drive a lot of the interest. And, and as Gene said, you've taken another obscure area, and I think the coin system and Andy and Abyss being the first notable and driven it home to all of us. And, and so I'm excited in that regard, and I think that'll generate a lot of the, uh, a lot of the interest now I'm gonna I'm gonna go perhaps a bridge too far, but ask you to talk about the series and recognize that the gamer community will give you the same flexibility that everyone gave you with the coin series to go the direction you see fit. Yeah, in which in which uh, none of the four my originally planned volumes two, three, and four <laughs> have been printed yet. Yeah, yeah, uh, yet being the operative. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, it was one. Well, yes, and one 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 is uh, coming, which is the the Philippines will finally get done, which was I had intended as volume three. It's coming. That's great. Yeah. So um, I have thank and thanks for asking. So first of all, here's a kind of a cool uh, twist that happened at, at, at San Diego um, with you recently at SD Hiscon is when I showed it to Gene, I had thought, okay, well, um, this is going to be medieval warfare, and I wanted to call it the medieval, medieval campaign series. And Gene's question was, could you do um, Rommel in the desert with this system? And I, and I, I you know had to think think about. It. I said, well, no, I don't. I don't think so because we're very focused here on campaigns that are affected by limited enlistments, by this limited, this time-limited feudal obligation. In fact, a third of the game board is the feudal calendar. And, and in World War II, you know, these troops are in it for the duration. So I don't think, for starters. Right. And so, in that, in the, but that was, that, that, that led to a second question, was what do you think you, you know, you could cover? And so I thought, you know, really anything that's pre-industrial, operational level warfare in which Part of uh, the interest is in the the limited service of troops. 
So mercenaries, absolutely. Uh, you could cover um, ancient campaigns where, let's say, tribal obligations were at play, and that was a reason that armies might not stay together over duration would work. Um, and I even thought of um, uh, something like a campaign like um, Trenton and, and, and Princeton. Certainly. In, in which the fact that Washington was going to lose his troops at the end of the year impacted how he ran that campaign, what he did, uh, that, he, that he was going to attack when he had those troops because he didn't – or and if he won, he thought maybe he could keep those troops, right? Right. And if he did nothing, he would lose them for sure. So those are the kinds of calculus. So I thought uh, anything pre-industrial were that kind of aspect. And so, so Gene said, so it's not just medieval. And that's how we get the Levy and, and campaign series. Uh, so that's, I, there's, you know, what a company, a conversation with a company president can do for you. Um, uh, so he knows what he's, what he's doing and what the, what the potential might be. So my first, I have four volumes in mind as I did for the coin series. I have <laughs> settings. We'll see. I have them in mind. I'm happy to talk about them and they are all medieval, but that could very well be just, j just the beginning if the thing seems to work and people seem to like it. Um, so you might notice for medi even for medieval warfare that Nevsky even is, is not just as medieval operational, a little bit off the beaten track, but Teutons and, and Russians is a bit off the beaten track of medieval warfare. And there, besides the fact that um, my ancestry is, is from nearby, another reason for that is what's really interesting to me is these uh, the aspects of where there's a cultural clash, right, where um, – the the style of fighting is different. The feudal system is different. Um, the uh, it, it's on the it's on the periphery. It's on the frontier, the Baltic frontier of the 13th century. I mean, thinking back to wilderness war. I mean, what what I loved about the French and Indian War was, you know, you had this very you know sophisticated, um, feet you know European way of fighting uh, of the 18th century, and it's trying to apply that culture in this vast wilderness where there's a very different way of fighting that is very effective in that environment. And how do these two different ways of fighting, the traditional European armies and logistics versus petit guerre and Indians, how do those two resolve, right? That just is interesting asymmetry that, 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 that generated wilderness war. Right. Well, it's the same. So, the, so, so I'm, I'm a lot more interested in how does the, um, you know, the Teutonic order and its twist on organizing military operations within the feudal system, clashing, you know, how does that clash with the Russian, you know, and the Novgorod Republic and it and, and, and it's drawing on Byzantine and Eastern traditions. I mean, we have horse archers, probably from the Mongols, in the battle um, of the ice. I mean, it's Teutonic Knights against horse archers. Where do you get that? You know, well, you get it at periphery, you get it in the Crusades. Uh, and you get it on the Baltic frontier. And so my first four, just when I looked at what was interesting to me, I'm a little less interested in, you know, in the heart of Europe, you know, the, this group of German barons versus that group of German barons and which group of German barons will end up running the place for the next, you know, 10 years. A little less, not, not uninteresting, but less interesting than Teutons versus Russians, right? So, so, so my idea for the, 
next three volumes, if we keep going, two, three, and four, would all be on the periphery. So we'd go to the northwest um, corner, and I would do uh, I would do Longshanks, which is right. so Edward, who is this brilliant logistician, right? Just fantastic at marshalling um, men and supplies and arms and his campaign into Scotland where he's running into those tactics and those politics, which are again, so different. Um, uh, And maybe that would be a a double header with, we'll do the Bruce as well. So we'll have Edward the, the, uh, the second and the Bruce. Uh, and so that's my idea right now for volume two, volume three, El Cid. So we go to Re- Prelude to Reconquista, and the you have a f- fractious Muslim state. The Christian power is trying to take advantage of that, but the Almoravid um, fundamentalists coming in from North Africa um, and pushing back. And in the middle of all of that, you have this this. Um, I mean, what was he? I'll say it. I mean, he was a sort of a, I mean, a, 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 another, I don't know. Another saint, right? <laughs> a, a, a war chief, kind of. I mean, he's, you know, he's just, uh, he's he's fighting on whatever side and is, is coming in to, to um, yeah, to, to take the, in this case, for, at, most famously, takes the Christian cause forward and, and captures Valencia. So that would be then volume three. And then volume four, we would, go, of course, to the southeast corner and do something from the Crusades. And I, I suspect I would do the Hat, Hatton Saladin, it would be Saladin, right. and it would be the eight, 1187 uh, uh, Hatton campaign, where logistics and water and uh, the need to relieve a siege and all those kinds of operational aspects of, of um, warfare co- come into strong relief. So you'd have King King Guy and, and so I, you know, I don't know whether you noticed this, um, but every one of those has a famous movie, and I figure that can't hurt. Right. Absolutely. No, that's good. That's good. So it's going to be the uh, the famous movie series then instead of the famous movie series. Yes. <laughs> well, that'll, that'll, that 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 movie's about medieval operational warfare and the impact of the feudal system on military technology. Got that. Got it. So we'll have uh, alternative names for that. For the series, and I, I hate to even say obscure, but I think it's with Nevsky certainly off the beaten path of what's been gamed, but you're you're moving back into the zone of topics that gamers will be familiar with. Right. And 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 so I, I would think so. So we have, of course, Hammer the Scots and Crusader Rex. I love Crusader Rex. This is just an awesome, awesome design. And so for those at least, you'll have okay, it won't be it'll be familiar if you know those games. But we're going to be giving you a, a rather more intense look at um, the feudal system and command and logistics and tactics as, and the like, because this is this is one thing I think people should um, expect is this series is rather more wargamey than coin was, if you know what I mean. Right. Good. Well, you know, I have a, a thousand questions about mechanics, but we'll we'll spend some time perhaps at GMT West face-to-face on that issue. Oh, looking forward to it. As am I, and uh, also uh, looking forward to seeing you in November in San Diego. You got it. Yeah, me too. 
How about a how about a brief update on uh, what's going on with the coin series because uh, so much happening. Yeah, there it's it's uh, it, it's uh, wonderful to behold, and it's also actually quite challenging just to organize it all. Um, so so most proximately, uh, CoinFest, as GMT is calling it, which is we have five out of print volumes that will be back in print. And uh, the schedule was to do it in June. I didn't look in the in Gene's most recent note the other day whether that's. I know there's been some production queue issues. I don't I hope that hasn't been pushed back. Yeah, I didn't notice. But uh, but so June or thereabouts, we will have all the coin volumes in print for the first time. I don't know in years because Andy and Abyss has been out of print for a long time. Right. And so there's that, and all of them will involve some improvement mainly on the the non-players on the Salter system because um or orian and Veza and others and i have been um hard at work updating all of the bots to um to basically modern coin standards if you will but Veza has this wonderful format um, that is just it's just easier to work your way through the flowcharts and Orion, of course, has continued to um, hammer on and hammer on uh, these bots to make them more effective opponents. And um, I've tried to do the same with Falling Sky. So there's second edition Falling Sky bots, the Fire in the Lake bots. Uh, Orion has completely redone, uh, and we'll add in the fourth uh, bot to Andean Abyss, the government um, bot, and so forth. So so um, it's not just a um, fix the errata and reprint. So in every case, there'll be some, some sort of enhancement in those um, reprints and second editions. And then with that package, we'll also have Ariovistus, the uh, uh, expansion to Falling Sky that, that Andrew and I did together. And Ariovistus is like a prequel because Falling Sky does the second half or so of, of Caesar's Gallic War. And so Ariovistus adds the first half and you can, with a sort of interlude in between, if you wanted to be fanatical about it, you could play Caesar's entire time in Gaul in one combined Terrific. Falling Sky and Ariovistus, if you Terrific. want. Um, but what it does is it adds the Germans as a, as a full-fledged um, player uh, faction of their own, including, of course, a non-player version of, of the Germanic tribes. And they they play the first half of the wars instead of the um, Vercingetorix's Averni, because Vercingetorix, of course, isn't on the scene yet till till later. And we have a, a very different mini-bot for the Averni. So if you think about the Germanic tribes as sort of a, a mini-bot in Falling Sky, where they're, it's not a, it's not a complicated flowchart it's just a, a routine and they're there as a nuisance you have a rather more dangerous um non-player celtic tribes about as the germans are fighting caesar and dividiacus of the edui um and the and the belgi this time led by by the nervii um you always have this threat of the pre-versing Gedorix, um Averni and other celts uh, rising up and um, and mobilizing and um, probably giving the Romans and the Edui a very hard time. So a rather different strategic situation, but 
almost entirely the same course rule set and and most of the same components as Falling Sky. So I, I hope people will like this will be the first coin series expansion that we put out. We as as folks may know, we have one coming for Cuba Libre in Vierno in Vierno from Adam Zom. And we may one day have one for Fire in the Lake as well, which would be the Fall of Saigon from Mark Herman. Right. Right. We're going to have to get oh, Mark Herman working on that, by the way. He promises. Yeah. Well, he's, bu- he's, he's, he's busy, as I just saw. He's been, <laughs> he's been in 1919. Uh, 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 he's just uh, he's got a design with Jeff Engelstein I saw on um, uh, the Versailles. So those are just, and so, okay, so that's just CoinFest. But then, of course, we have um, three other um, volumes on P500. Um, Gandhi, uh, of course, is British, um, British India, and the four-faction uh, conflict there from, from Bruce Mansfield. And uh, one thing that's cool about that is uh, non, two nonviolent factions, Muslim League and the, and the Congress. And so we have a, an implementation of, a non, of nonviolent factions in the coin system that are trying to um, trying to push the push opposition against the colonial government, but also trying to keep the hothead insurgents in line as well, and not and keep unrest uh, under wraps. And so that's a really interesting um, uh, tap dance for these um, for these factions to carry out in terms of it's not, doesn't just matter to them um, how India rises up uh, or that India rises up, but how it does. Uh, uh, and what tactics are used, right. and so lots of great ideas in in there from 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 Bruce, and that one is is very far along. Um, the the four player design I think is is completely there, and now it's a matter of um, working working through the, the non player design. So that was coming. Whether that will make calendar twenty eighteen or not, I don't know, but it but it could. I think it's in shooting range to to be out uh, the end of this year. And then uh, we have All Bridges Burning, three-player Finnish Civil War. So the same time that you have the Russian Revolution uh, and Reds and Whites going on in Russia, in Finland, um, which had been part of Russia, but the, but but now is independent, recently independent in 1718, 1917, and you have Red Guards and White Guards there duking it out, and in the middle, a nonviolent social democratic faction, uh, and uh, another historical case where the uh, the nonviolent um, faction wins in the end, right. and and some neat mini bot kind of mechanics where you have a very strong possibility of Germ- Germans intervening with with their very strong troops, and a smaller possibility of of the the Soviet Russian uh, the Red Army coming in as well, and armored trains and artillery and other kind of um, cool. Uh, 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 enhancements and color coming into the coin series in a, a very nice small quick package because it's a smaller size board like Cuba Libre or Falling Sky uh, and and with three players um, it it finishes rather rather faster than the four player the larger four player games and then uh, People Power a project that you're uh, intimately familiar in uh, familiar with um, but for for your um, Listeners, so the Philippines, Marcos, uh, and uh, uh, the 1980s um, nonviolent opposition movement that managed to overthrow the dictators and um, triumph uh, in the face of 
the insurgents, both the communist uh, New People's Army and the Moro insurgents of the South uh, from Ken T and my originally envisioned volume three. So people power. So here's what's what's kind of cool for for those who are uh, interested in the evolution of the coin series and where it's going. We have then of these next three volumes, two volumes that involve nonviolent factions, right? Gandhi and people power and two different design teams who have in those con- historical contexts executed these this this balancing act of the nonviolent factions in different ways uh and so really interesting i think compare and contrast how you know bruce's nonviolent factions and ken's nonviolent factions um uh are, are executed in the system because the designs are independent uh not sequential the other the other thing that's notable about those design teams as i think about it is that there are two design teams that have not previously been involved in a coin design or development role. So, so it's really, I think, testament, Volko, and I, I wonder if you really even thought of where this could go when you developed Andy and Abyss and thought about the coin series. Unbelievable. I, I, I don't know that anything other than perhaps Squad Leader, right, and an advanced Squad yeah. Leader has spawned such development, independent, of the original designer. Yeah, and I think I can think of some other examples, but I'm tremendously, um, I mean, overjoyed and 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 and, and prou- proud of it because because what we have now in in these volumes, in the in, the, in fact, in the the eight volumes that are published. No, I never had any. Not only not only did I not conceive of the any of these directions, I couldn't have. I mean, there's I would I would have. If you would have said, oh, yeah, and we should do a two-player coin game, I'm saying you don't get it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't understand the principle of the coin series, you know. And yet and yet, uh, what Brian has, has, has brought us in, in Clone Twilight is, is brilliant and is now being applied retroactively to the four-player games. Right. Using Brian system for two, it works for the rest. And it, in fact, you know, improves them <laughs> in many ways. And so, yeah, it really is. You're right in terms of those design teams are coming out of um, essentially out of nowhere. They're, of course, they're studying the development and they're, they're drawing. So you can do a family tree of, of, of the coin series. But in but 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 people power and and Gandhi are really on different branches, even though what they're doing is the same. And then the other comparison in the trio is all bridges burning and people power, both of which. Uh, alter the core sequence of play for three players right in different ways <laughs> <laughs> that both work really well <laughs> right uh and and so so for those who have been waiting for three player you know designed for three player coin games you'll have two uh by the end i hope by the end of 2019 you'll have you know two options that are both fill the bill brilliantly um in 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 but independently but in different ways diversely which is just really exciting that's terrific well i you know i i uh i'll close by saying that uh this is a testament to not only the brilliance of the the original design uh, and elegance of the original design but also your willingness to cultivate so many people in the hobby and your patience and uh and it's it's been great at having having benefited from that personally. 
Yeah, I mean, those, those are those are kind words. Well, since we were, just mentioned 1919, I think it was Woodrow Wilson said, um, and I use all the brains that I have and all the brains I can borrow. So, Volko, on a more personal level, can you tell us something about what you've been watching? Movies, TV, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I watch so little, so I have to kind of search my mind for something that, that is, you know, is recent. I did go see uh, Darkest Hour with my family, and I enjoyed that very much. Is that how... Is how are war gamers reacting that? Do you know? Do they like it? I, I don't know. I've heard a little bit of favorable response and some resurgence in, uh, in Churchill, of course. You know, because it's Gary Oldman, and I've, I remember Gary Oldman from a lot of movies, and I couldn't even recognize Gary Oldman. It was so much. It was so much like Winston Churchill. I mean, it was that. Was it like a CGI Gary Oldman, or was that just what he looks like now? Because I, I, I thought it was incredible. Yeah, I, I saw him uh, on television and interviewed about it afterwards, and it doesn't look like him at all. Huh. I wonder how they how they did that. I I just I found it. I, I'm no tremendous expert, but I just found it very convincing, Churchill. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And and on the heels of Dunkirk, it was a great uh, one-two punch uh, for us over the past six months or so. What about um, what about books? What are you reading? What have you read that's interesting? You know, uh, I, unsurprisingly, perhaps I've been reading about the 13th century Baltic frontier, <laughs> uh, and then and then medieval warfare books generally. And uh, starting to look ahead a bit to um, uh, King Edward, and uh, you know towards uh, towards the the Longshanks game. So, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. It's um, it's really mainly been research for Le- Levy and, and campaign series. Can you can you give us one notable that I'm, I'm sure there'll be requests for uh, for a reference? Yeah, and so the game will have a, a bibliography. And uh, and the, the titles and the, the the authors I have to say kind of blend together. The the most notable one comes out of um, Tartu University, so it's an Estonian um, historian, and he's making the case in the and it's a it's it's wonderful detailed uh, research, but it's kind of a polemical. He's making the case that. You know, it's not really this history of continuous conflict between, um, you know, the, the the Balts and the Teutons and the Russians, but that the interweaving of the the cultures and the societies was really the dominant um, aspect to the history, and that and so he's taking on a lot of the, you know, the the what he's I think taking on his myths of of the of the Nevsky campaign that's covered in the game. And so there's a lot of great grist in there, but it just, it's, it's, it's always entertaining for me because it, it is so, it's so polemical. And what they're arguing about is not, you know, what should we do about climate change? But, you know, um, what happened back in the 13th century and, you know, how we should not fall prey to popular mythology <laughs> and uh, and and i just i get i i just have a lot of enjoyment from um participating in, in that passion that sort of scholarly passion about something that you know i mean what can i say it's it's i guess it, i guess you could say that about somebody designing a game about warfare in that time it's sort of well 
it's just fun because it doesn't harm us one way or the other today. <laughs> right, right, right. That makes sense. Um, no, I, I, I think if we thought too much about what we game, especially on a tactical level, it wouldn't be very appetizing. Yeah, and and I think I think that's a sort of for me what it's escape. You know, I I I I war game to be transported to other places and other times, and it's even it sound may sound ironic since the coin series is about modern insurgency and counterinsurgency, but I guess I'm now um, really enjoying in both in the reading these books and in in working on 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 this particular. Um, game Nevsky and the game series and then playing other games that are set in that era as such as uh, you know I mentioned Crusader Rex um, uh, it's kind of getting back to the escapism part of the hobby for me and, right. uh, and that for me I think psychologically is 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 very important I don't I, I you know I, you know a game like um, labyrinth or I would say a distant plane some part of it for me is a little bit too much like work Right, right. And so I'm just, I'm just really enjoying myself reading about, you know, the uh, 13th century, the, the Middle Ages, Baltic frontier, and yes, and right. yes, and and getting passionate about that for a little bit is just fun. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I, I, for me, it's it's escapism in the context of, of thinking about and understanding the historical decisions, the decision set that was available and. And, and that it's real. I mean, it's not it's not escape to a fantasy. I mean, the, these people lived and made those decisions. But just trying to feel what that was, it's so different, you know, it's so different from where we are now. And that's what's what's so much fun. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So so yeah. Uh, let, let me move to a lighter note, potentially. Uh, the last time you and I spoke about music, uh, you referenced a CD that you'd picked up at Starbucks. So uh, I'm going to ask you, what are you listening to now, or what uh, what what do you like to listen to when you have the time? So um, I when I'm when I'm designing, I don't know if you do this, but I try to immerse as much as possible. Uh, so not just reading the books or I watch, watching the movies or playing other games, but but eating the food if I can, or um, and and absolutely listening to the music. So it might not surprise you that I've been. Um, listening to a lot of medieval and renaissance music and we have a, a local group here in dc called the folger consort um and i like to go to the the folger library sort of a shakespearean theater style right. um a, a theater there next to a shakespeare library the, the folger library and in addition to shakespearean plays of course um the folger consort um plays there and the last time I was there, I picked up a number of their CDs, and one of them is just um, mind-blowing to me, which is uh, Christmas in New Spain. And it's the, it's the consort playing compositions from Mexico and principally Peru, Trujillo, from the 16th century, maybe early 17th. So you have um, Renaissance music uh, and it's music that's commissioned for the church. And it was a bishop of Trujillo who commissioned the, the bulk of it on the CD. And the, 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 the mind-blowing thing about it is it's, it sounds like European church music, as, as, as we know and love it, with a very distinct, to me, Andean Latin 
sound that is just uh, uh, irresistible, first of all. But amazing to me, I, you know, I, I mentioned my mother was Argentine and I grew up um, with, you know, music from, from Argentina playing in the house and Misa, Misa Criolla, which is, uh, uh, I think it's 1960s composition. But when the Latin church said, you can have your um, service music be in the local language and the local style. And so it's, it's church music um, in, in Spanish with a lot of um, uh, native South American instrumentation in it, and it's just beautiful music. And I hear that same sound in this music from the 16th century, from Peru, um, and and, and it, it's it's really it's really magical and just to me so impressive that that early we already have a blending of um, by the way not just Native American but African rhythms and European. Uh, spiritual music and traditions into something that is uniquely Latin American. You know, hundreds of years ago. So, so last question, Volko, uh, and I know how hard it is to play games while you're designing a game or games, but uh, have you played anything fun lately? Uh, yeah, I have, and you're absolutely right. I, I just, uh, I'm so looking, the th- thing I'm looking forward to most uh, 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 in retiring <laughs> um, <laughs> from my day job is is, is not just um, designing more games, but actually getting to just play games um, right. again. Yeah, um, so uh, the last thing I played um, was, I think it's called Struggle of Empires at a local game group. Mm-hmm. And it's roughly um, 18th century uh, global empire. So you've got, you know, you've got the countries in Europe, but they also have their possessions in the East Indies and in uh, North and South America and your, you know, building armies and fleets, but acquiring a whole variety of capabilities as well. And it's uh, it's it's nifty uh, as a you know one evening um, multiplayer game because it gives you in a simple system it gives you a sense of both the you know the colony building um, far flung fleets and empires and Native American alliances and things like that uh, as well as big armies tromping around the center of Europe um, so it manages with one simple system to capture both of those very different endeavors so i, I liked it for that i've been uh, play testing the um imperial struggle from yes ananda gupta yes uh, which covers the same period and uh, yes is is great great fun david and, and, I, and I know ananda will be at the warehouse 
Yes. Uh, so so that's going to be a, another chance to have a look at that. It's going to be great. And, and of course, Terry Leeds, who did the map, Liberty or Death, is, yeah. is doing the artwork. And it's if you haven't seen a glimpse, it is incredible. So it's going to I be have great. I have not. It's I have not. I have seen Ananda with it at the cons, but I have not seen Terry's work. There may oh, be something it. on the P500 page. If not, okay. I'll, I'll shoot you a, I'll shoot you a sneak peek. Uh, all right, Volko, thanks, and thanks for taking the time, and as always, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thanks so much, Harold. Uh, this, this is, it's been a gas, as always, and I look forward to doing it again. And finally, as an homage to the wild weasel himself, Mr. Bruce Garrick, here is some South China Sea radio chatter. I'm a United States military aircraft conducting lawful military activities outside national airspace. I am operating with due regard as required under international law. Station calling U.S. military aircraft. Please identify yourself. I am United States military aircraft conducting lawful military activities outside national airspace. I am operating with zero regard as required under international law. Uh, this is Chinese level. Uh, please go away quickly in order to avoid the long judgment. So that's a wrap for my first podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Special thanks to David Blood and his San Diego-based band, The Experiments, for much of the background music. Check them out at theexperiments.com. Additional musical credits go to the UCLA Choirs and Ensemble for their performance of Miso Criolla. And to the U.S. Navy P-8A Poseidon performing Freedom of Navigation Operations in the South China Sea. Thanks to all of you for your service. Do me the favor of sharing the podcast with a few friends, rating it a five on iTunes. That'll help get the word out. Leave me a comment on Board Game Geek with your thoughts and ideas. And I'll close with a special thanks to Volko Runka. And that's it for me. As always, I'm operating with due regard as required under international law, and I'll be back soon. <laughs>